thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And let me repeat what I said last week, that if you are a parent concerned about your ability, your authority, we would say, to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then let me encourage you to listen carefully. Let me encourage you to share this with your friends, perhaps even your pastor, Christian lawyers that you may know. What's going to be covered today is so important, and I confess to you, friends, I did not understand what I'm getting ready to tell you after I came out of law school, and for the next 20-something years, I didn't understand it. It was just not taught to me in law school, and there was nothing in my theological training that prepared me to say what I'm going to say to you today. But the pieces of the last few weeks, as we've talked about Rousseau and Christian nationalism and civil religion and cancel culture, is going to come to a head In the context, again, of what I discussed last week, the bills around the country trying to address the transgender issue. Now today, I'm going to pick up with what I said last week, that the law in Tennessee is an attempt to create a legal foundation, a a sense of fundamental law, by which two competing medical stories are to be judged. As I mentioned last week, what's happening with these bills is that the Christian side is going in with all this medical evidence to show that transgender procedures, therapies, hormone therapies, and um, surgical procedures are, are harmful to children. The other side comes in and says, no, they're not harmful. These children are under great psychological stress. They need help. They may have suicidal thoughts. And so we need to allow these transgender procedures. And what I want to focus on today is this concept of dignity and what it is in a culture that is governed by what Francis Schaeffer termed in 1981 an environment of sociological law. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, A Christian Manifesto, if you've not read it, you ought to, talks about sociological law. Now, let me connect some dots to what sociological law is from the podcast that I've been having over the last year where I keep going back to this question of cosmology. What's the nature of the cosmos we're in? How does the cosmos we live in actually work? According to what principles, according to what laws, according to what person, if we believe in God, does the cosmos actually work? Your cosmology produces a certain kind of anthropology. And your anthropology produces a certain kind of sociology. Okay, so when I mention sociological law, I'm talking about the law of a society rooted in its anthropology, drawn from its cosmology. 
And as you'll see, this concept of cosmology, anthropology, sociology parallels the biblical concepts, the theological concepts of cosmology, soteriology, and eschatology. Now, I'm going to quote to you some from what Francis Schaeffer said about sociological law because it will help you then understand how we're now defining dignity. And again, why is it important? Because what our state is trying to do is, is to give some fundamental law that says, here's how we're going to judge the science. We're going to judge it based on what promotes, that's the word from the legislature, human dignity. Well, as you can see right then, you're going to have to have an anthropology, right, to know what promotes human dignity. And they're going to do it to prevent emotional harms. Well, to know what constitutes an emotional harm, you're again going to have to have a certain kind of anthropology. Okay? The problem with the Tennessee bill is it does not define what emotional harms are or what dignity is. It doesn't root them in any fundamental law. They, in essence, are just abstract concepts whereby we declare sociologically that, well, this kind of hormone therapy is emotional abuse and it's, it, it denies dignity. The other side says, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we live in a world governed just by science, there are no such values except such as we make up, and we've made up a different set of values. And we oppose your set of values. And to be honest, neither side, without a sound anthropology rooted in a sound cosmology, can say why the other side is wrong or why their side is right. You may remember the episode a few weeks back where I talked about we live in a yin-yang cosmology. We live in a materialistic, naturalistic world where everything is governed simply by laws of nature that operate on us. And we can control and manipulate those laws of nature, and so we can control and manipulate matter, and so we can control and manipulate who we are. And so now it's just a question of who can get power to force the ying upon the yangers, or the yangers force it upon the yingers. I hope that makes sense. But here's what Francis Schaeffer said in 1981, and I read this book probably back in 1982 or 83, while I was in law school. It was given to me by a Christian friend, and I read it and I loved it, but my friends, to be honest, I did not understand the gravity of what he was saying, and it made no real difference to me in my understanding of law and public policy for the next 30-something years. Here's what he said. I'm quoting from the chapter on the destruction of faith and freedom. In most law schools today, almost no one studies William Blackstone unless he or she is taking a course in the history of the law. Now that's true for me. I, I didn't even take a history of the law class. I didn't have to take one to get a doctor of jurisprudence, so I never read Blackstone. Not until, when was it, 1991 did I read William Blackstone's commentaries. Schaefer continues, we live in a secularized society, in a secularized sociological law. That's where I first heard that term. But let me continue with what Schaefer says. By sociological law, we mean law has no fixed base, 
but law in which a group of people decides what is sociologically good for society at the given moment, and what they arbitrarily decide becomes law. So when you live under sociological law, society says this is good, this is bad, today we're going with the yin, tomorrow we're going with the yang, and that is the law and it is good because we said it is the law that we said this promotes dignity or this harms dignity. But we have no fixed base for deciding what constitutes or diminishes dignity or constitutes emotional abuse or doesn't constitute emotional abuse. Now, where might this come from? Let me go to Rousseau and let me explain it to you. This is from his book that I've referenced over the last few weeks of social contract or principles of political right. Now this is in book one, chapter one, and notice what he says. The social order is a sacred right which serves as the basis of all the others, yet this right, this sacred right in the social order, is not derived from nature. Now we would say that there is a social order and there is a standard for evaluating social orders because social orders are created by the very fact that we've been made in the image of God and made in the image of God in order to reproduce as male and female. So, so there is a social order. But what he says is it's not derived from nature. He says, continuing on, it is therefore founded upon agreements. It is a question of knowing what these agreements are. Now, when you move on to his paragraph on religion and civil religion that we've also been discussing, we come to this statement. Let us return. So by that, he's referring to the weeks I've talked about the different kinds of religion and how Christianity is really spiritual and otherworldly, and, but pagans, religions all fight against each other, and so we need to have some kind of civil religion. And he says, so returning then to the question of right. Now, that should give you a signal right there that this is a subjective view of reality, not an objective one. Remember, we've had a series, or we've talked about in some of our past series, about objective theology versus subjective theology. Theology for the sake of God, theology for the sake of man. Rights for the, for the sake of God versus rights for the sake of man. And he says, let's in turn to the question of right and determine the principles of relating to this important point, which of course is the point of rights. And this is what he next says, the very next sentence. The right which the social pact that's what we just talked about, right? The social order is grounded upon agreements. The social pact gives the sovereign over the subjects does not go beyond the limits of public utility. Now, let me read that sentence again. The right which the social pact gives the sovereign over the subjects does not go beyond the limits of public utility. So in other words, it's pragmatism. He cites here a footnote in which he quotes Marquis de Arkansas. I don't know who he is, I've not read any of his works. But Rousseau quotes him as saying, In the Republic, each man is perfectly free with regard to that which does not harm others. This is the invariable limit. It cannot be set any more exactly. Okay. 
So here's what's being said. All we have is sociological law that arises out of society and the agreements that we make in society. And so we have to operate in a practical matter here, you see, in a practical way that he then goes on in this chapter on religion to say the fundamental principle is sociability. That's sociological law. Do you see that the sociological law about which Schaefer speaks is derived from this sociability as the foundation of law that Rousseau describes? And why does that law prevail but for the fact that Christianity is perceived as an otherworldly spiritual religion which leaves a vacuum for the kind of civil religion that Rousseau espouses, which makes sociability the principal fundamental right and authorizes the sovereign to cancel all that undermines sociability and to shame into silence those who undermine sociability. So let me go back to what Schaefer says in the paragraph that I was earlier reading from, The Destruction of Faith and Freedom. He says, this new view of law now means that all types of situations are spread out before us and that it's really up to each individual to grab one or the other on the way past according to the whim of personal preference. What you take is only a matter of personal choice, with one choice as valid as another. Pluralism has come to mean that everything is acceptable. This new concept of pluralism suddenly is everywhere. There is no right or wrong. It is just a matter of your personal preference. That ties directly into Obergefell versus Hodges, in which the majority of the Supreme Court began its analysis of the nature of marriage with the assertion that liberty, guaranteed by the Constitution, includes certain rights to persons to, quote, define and express their identity. In other words, everything is a matter of personal choice. And therefore, the force of the law must come together to allow these choices, and there cannot be any givens, any transcendent law, any real law, because all there is is sociological law, and so the Christian has to adjust to that kind of environment in which there are no givens. And to assert givens is to promote unsociability, which gets you canceled and banished from culture, and as Rousseau said, even death if necessary. So when the legislature says it's going to promote dignity and it doesn't define the basis of dignity, it's open to anything. It actually is a codification by the legislature of ambiguous, amorphous, elusive concepts of rootless dignity. That's what Obergefell was. And because the legislature can't provide a law by which to limit or define or, or create an objective dignity, well, 
The legislature will just decide what it is and substitute its judgment for that of parents. So you see how we now have the destruction of parental rights under the predicate given in the state of Tennessee for the transgender bill. Now, I want to tie this back to Obergefell. I mentioned it, now I'm going to give you the specifics. In the last paragraph of the Obergefell decision, after talking about dignity, dignity, dignity eight times, it closes with these two sentences. In referring to the persons who now want the government to redefine marriage in such a way that it is no longer exclusively defined in terms of the opposites of male and female, but is just any two people. Here's what the court says. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law that the Constitution grants them that right. Now, that's a hugely important statement. They want dignity, and so the Supreme Court says dignity is the right to define and express your identity, and all you're wanting to do is express your identity as those who are in a loving, mutually committed, permanent <laughs> relationship, just like any other two people. That's not bound or limited by male or female, so you're being denied dignity when the law is, is, is used to, to prevent you from this understanding of who you are. Now, ultimately, friends, the legislature, I guess in Tennessee and other states, is going to say, well, we think this denies dignity, and then they're going to leave it up to a federal judge to decide if he agrees or disagrees, and I don't know on what basis the judge will decide that, uh, because the legislature is not giving them any law by which dignity is defined, right? And I would have to presume that lower federal courts are going to say, well, the United States Supreme Court has defined dignity. It's a liberty to define and express your own identity. And now the legislature is stepping in and defining that for you. But the legislature can't do that. That violates your liberty. And they're violating it in the context of the parents' decisions about how to best help their own child um, have an express dignity. I mean, it's just fraught with peril. And, and I wouldn't be saying this so much publicly if I hadn't been saying it so often privately and, and having found that it's fallen on deaf ears in about every circle in which I run. Not only in the state of Tennessee, but even nationally. Now, I want to give you what Clarence Thomas says in his dissent to Obergefell about dignity. And you're going to find this, I think, very fascinating. Because he gives a basis for human dignity that is objective and real and would limit the legislature in its definition of dignity and obviously emotional harms because emotional harms are tied to our dignity. We suffer emotional harm when we feel our dignity has been assaulted. So here's what Clarence Thomas said. Human dignity has long been understood in this country to be innate. When the framers proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal 
and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, they referred to a vision of mankind, anthropology, in which all humans are created in the image of God and therefore of inherent worth. That vision is the foundation upon which this nation was built. The corollary of that principle, that it's innate, it's because we've been made in the image of God, is that human dignity cannot be taken away by the government. That's what Clarence Thomas said. Slaves did not lose their dignity any more than they lost their humanity because the government allowed them to be enslaved. Those held in internment camps did not lose their dignity because the government confined them. And those denied governmental benefits certainly do not lose their dignity because the government denies them those benefits. The government cannot bestow dignity and it cannot take it away. Now, I would say that the government can protect dignity in the limited sense that it can acknowledge a true anthropology. That, that we are created male and female and those things are wonderful and they're exquisite and, and, and to therefore blur those distinctions is to deny people dignity. But none of the government officials in Tennessee will say that, nor will any of the, the Christian lawyers and policymakers I've been talking to around the country say that. Now, in regard to that, and I'm going to come back to this dignity in a moment, listen to what Francis Schaeffer said. After talking about the fact that we live in a world of sociological law, he says this, now I have a question. In these shifts that have come in law, where were the Christian lawyers during the crucial shift from 40 years ago to just a few years ago? Now, again, he's writing in 1981, so we're talking about from the 1940s forward. Now that this has happened, we can say, surely the Christian lawyers should have seen the change taking place and stood on the wall and blown the trumpets loud and clear. A non-lawyer like myself has a right to feel somewhat let down because the Christian lawyers did not blow the trumpets clearly between, let's say, 1940 and 1970. But it's not just the Christian lawyers. Schaefer goes on to say this. And those Bible-believing theologians who did see the theological danger seem totally blind to what was happening in law and in the total culture. So you had theologians talking about theology, but they couldn't see theology being applied in law and in culture. They lived in a dualistic world, a theological world and a secular world, a spiritual world and a secular world, uh, an eternal world and a temporal world. So Schaefer continues, thus the theologians did no better in seeing the shift from one worldview to a totally different worldview. He goes on, nor did the Christian educators do any better either. The failed responsibility covers a wide swath. Christian educators, Christian theologians, Christian lawyers, none of them blew loud trumpets until we were a long, long way down the road toward a humanistically based culture. And he said, if we're going to do better, we must stop being experts in only seeing these things in bits and pieces. We have to understand that it is one total entity opposed to the other total entity. Now let's come back to this question of dignity. You heard Clarence Thomas say dignity is innate. 
You heard him say that dignity can't be taken away from the government. You heard him say that slaves don't lose their dignity. And my friends, that, that's all throughout the scripture. Paul and Silas are in prison, right? You would think that would destroy their dignity, but no, their dignity was not rooted in where they were located. It was rooted in their knowledge of God. And so they're worshiping and praising God in prison. Paul said what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Shame comes about when you're doing what's wrong and you know it. And when all we have is sociological law, we live in a shame-based culture because everything can shame anybody at any time because there's no objective basis for shame rooted in whether you know God and the nature of his cosmos and what he's done and what he's doing or you don't know. See, there's an objective thing. So Paul and Silas were not ashamed of their imprisonment. Paul was not ashamed of his stripes or, or his beatings. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There is the only basis for avoiding shame. It has nothing to do with civil law. But this Marquette law professor talking about Thomas's dignity comments I quoted to you previously said this, to Justice Thomas dignity means the nobleness of being human created in the image of God and therefore of inherent worth. But to Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, referring there to Obergefell, dignity as protected by the Constitution is a richer concept and autonomy is at its heart. Quote, intimate choices that define personal identity and belief are central to individual dignity and autonomy. In the words of Pico della Mirandola, Dignity is the ability of man to be whatever he chooses. Now, isn't it great to know that the Constitution gives us a richer concept of dignity than man being made in the very image of God? That's where we are today. And so if you care about dignity an emotional harm, and a shame-based culture, and a cancel culture, the last thing you need to do is pass a bill that gives the state total control over the definition of what promotes dignity and protects against emotional harm when the state will not root it in anything that's real and objective but simply sociological law. Well, I think I'll end today's episode right there. And next week, we're going to take a look at some scripture verses that may help explain what God is doing in our current culture to refine and beautify his bride. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. 
and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Back Tennessee.